0: So we're kind of continuing through uh, a sermon series this fall, looking at different kinds of relationships. And uh, tonight I want us to... To spend some time, it'll be this week and next week. We're going to talk about friendship, which uh, which seems a little bit elementary, you know, Uh, and maybe not even it may not even feel very spiritual to talk about friendships when you've been talking about the the relationship between the between God the Father. It's all right. That door, somebody's going to tear that door out. It does it every week. Um, So it's the door's fault, not Greg's. Um. The uh, when you were talking about the relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit in the Trinity, and, and and Jesus's connection to us, and our connection to Him, and our connection to each other in Him, and it just we've been talking about some some really like deep ties that we have in our relationships with each other. Um, friendship, I, I think, can easily be pushed to the outside of 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 that conversation, kind of feeling like that's that's kind of fringy, you know. But really, when when you when you start to look at the like the stories of the Bible and the teachings in the Bible, friendship is a very important part of how He has created us to connect to each other. Um, so kind of what I'd like to do is in John 15, um, Jesus has some pretty incredible statements, so we're going to walk through those. Um, Gabe, I t- gave you the wrong scriptures earlier. You got the message? Awesome. So we're in John 15, and uh, Jesus, this is part of His kind of parting uh, not speech, but just his last time with his disciples and his friends, and he just is just like handing down. There's just some phenomenal things here. We're just going to look at one part of that, starting in verse 12. Um, Jesus says, "This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you." So within that passage, uh, there's obviously some uh, like some pretty important stuff going on. In verse twelve, he kind of this is something we talked about last week, and he said it also in chapter thirteen, uh, verse twelve. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. That he's so he's talking to his disciples and he's telling them the like the connection and bond and interaction and the way that you're to treat one another. You just need to do exactly for one another what I have done for you in the same exact ways. You just basically just imitate me toward, toward one another. that that is this new commandment that He will empower their efforts to love each other in that way. So last week, um, I kind of just went through and, and, and talked about some of, some of the specific ways that we see Jesus love people um, through His presence with them, through being full of grace and full of truth with them, through His, uh, his commitment to them, to, for His willingness to sacrifice His own life. That, that We're looking at these ways that He loves people, and we're supposed to look at that and say, that's the model for all of our relationships and our friendships. So this new commandment is for us to interact with one another in the same ways that He interacts with His disciples. Um, verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you, is the next next verse. So so he's talking to them, and so he is their, he's their rabbi. Like he is the authority figure in, in their life, he's their, their teacher, they have, have followed him around for three years, been a part of his close group that he is mentoring, that he is training, that he is uh, teaching and sharing his life with them, and and there's the rabbi disciple relationship is not one that would be normally considered like equal you know, ground. And yet here's their rabbi who's saying, uh, you guys are my you're my friends. You know, you're not my subjects, you're not lower than me. Uh, I'm friends with, with you guys. Now they may not all realize that God is talking to them, you know, and saying, Hey, I know that I know that I created you. And I know that you, are, you have a brokenness that you bring to the table. And, I, and that brokenness is going to require me to die in order for that brokenness to be healed. Uh, you probably don't maybe re- realize all that kind of stuff. But something you, you also like, need to know is that I genuinely enjoy you. <laughs> like you are friends of mine. That I'm going to miss you. And you're going to miss me. And we have a reunion that is coming down the road. And uh, Jesus is weeping shortly shortly after this in Gethsemane, and some of the some of it is about just the the crucifixion and the the weight of sin and all the things that are coming with the cross. But I I often wonder like is he is he just sad also that he's about to leave these men that just mean so much to him? And I think when he looks at them and says, "Greater love has no one than this." that someone would lay down his life for his friends, I think that's a part of what he's communicating to them. Friendship is, is, is highly regarded by the Lord. Jesus has a very special place in his heart for these particular men. Um, enough so that he would sacrifice his life. Verse uh, 14, You are my friends if you do what I command you. That sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Jesus says this a couple of times in, in these, this group of, of chapters, uh, sim- similar things, that uh, you love me if you do what I command. You're my friend if you do what I command. Um, and that comes across kind of harshly sometimes, but, but when, you, when you think about what he's saying, that, that there is a connection between like, like the trust in him to do what he says you need to do, that that is your friend telling you, this is what, this is, what is best in this situation. Not only is he God, but he's also your friend who is saying, hey, the, you need to do these things. Your love for me, our friendship, will, will, con- will deepen and grow and connect uh, because th- this is what is best for you. There's a, there's a lot of friendship in there. There's more to it than friendship, but this is a sermon on friendship, so that's what I'm going to focus on. But there, it's, a, it's a very deep statement of like, look, we're friends. You need to do these things. Look, I love you, and you love me, and you need to do this. This is what people who love each other, like, this is, we have this kind of real talk together. Um, you need to do what I command you to do. Then he says, um, verse 15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. Okay? When he, when he first met them all, and I invited them to become his disciples, they were strangers. And he goes to them all individually and says, uh, come follow me. And they drop what they were doing. They go to follow this rabbi because that's when a rabbi comes to you, that's what you do. They left the family business and when they followed him and they, did not, they didn't really know this guy. After three years of life together, shared in the deepest kinds of community, uh, these guys were not his servants anymore. They really weren't even disciples not too long after this, they would become apostles. I mean, this was a big step for them. And maybe they were just starting to realize the connections that they have. And he says, look, you're like to servants, the master does not share his, his business, his ideas, his agenda, his vision, nothing with his servants. A master doesn't care about his servants. He says, I don't call you servants. Now I call you my friends. And why? Uh, I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. It says, I've, I've just shared, I've been a conduit of grace and truth from the Father to you. That's not what you do with, with servants, especially in the first century. That's what you do with your family. And that's what you do with your friends. We don't see a shallow connection here. We don't, we don't see distance. We see like a deep kind of camaraderie that exists um between them verse 16 you did not choose me but i chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name he may give it to you he's telling them, look there are there are big plans for you And in these chapters, he's talking about how he's going to go away so that the Spirit can come and dwell within them, that the the, the new covenant, the new set of promises that God had made and involved an inward like presence and transformation that would work its way out. that He loved them enough to leave them, to die for them, yes, to be resurrected, yes, but also to leave them so that what is best for them could happen, which was the Spirit coming to live inside of them. And that they would go and that they would bear fruit. He's saying, look, I, I chose you. I sought you out. I went to your family business and interrupted what you were doing and said, you, I want you to follow me. I appointed you, I chose you, that you would go and bear fruit. Verse 17, these things I command you, so that you will love one another. It's almost like he knows. Like uh, unless there's some instruction there, you know that like human nature will be to maybe not love each other in the same way. That that once he's gone, they they're going to kind of lose their bearings a little bit and aren't, may not be sure what to do. So over and over again, he's like, "Listen to my words. Follow my commandments. This is what you need to do. This is who I am. This is who you are." If you think about it, you're sitting there, and here's your rabbi who you're he said that you know he's God, but you're not really sure, but he might be. And you've watched him do all these miracles. You've watched him change your life, change so many other lives, be so uh loved by people and also hated by people, and you've just you've witnessed three years of just some really, really stunning things. And here is this guy who looks at you and says, Hey you guys know we're friends, right like I don't look at you I don't look at you as less than me i don't i i I chose you i, I came after you i I want you to follow these commandments because I love you and because we're friends and that's what friends do and uh, I'm gonna lay down my life for you and there's nothing there's no greater love than that and you lay down your life for your your friends you don't you don't choose your family necessarily in the same way that you choose your friends you know like it's so see. Do you guys see the like just the this this a friendship moment? This is this is one of those times where I think you see the humanity of Jesus really really clearly. Um, It's easy it's easy to sometimes to be like oh yeah well he was Jesus but no he was a he was a grown human man. He had emotions. He was sad sometimes and he was happy sometimes and he was disappointed sometimes and he he knows what it's like to be let down. Uh, He knows what it's like to be blessed. He knows how it is to be encouraged and discouraged. Um, he knows what it's like to have one of your closest friends like sell you, like literally sell you to the government for a bag of money. Uh, he understands all of these things, and he had a group of friends, just like we have friends. Like Jesus understands friendship. He understands the ups and the downs of that. And it was a valuable, important relationship to him. And so here, here you have this this paragraph, and it's kind of it's. There's a larger context of friendship throughout the Bible as well. Um, So over the summer, I read this book that had been recommended to me a couple of times, and um, it's called Spiritual Friendship. And this uh, Dr. Wesley Hill begins to explore exactly what friendship, like, looks like biblically and historically. And uh, it was a really, it was really great, really great book. And um, if you want to talk more, I would, I would want to talk more about it before you just go and get it from Amazon. So just make a note of that. But um, he, he, he takes some ideas that come from an Australian theologian uh, named Benjamin Myers, and essentially what Myers does, and then Wesley Hill kind of takes that and expands upon it, is he looks at friendship as. Uh, as something that most Christians do not live in the fullness of, and he identifies some some he calls them myths that are out there that keep our that keep us from being connected in the same ways that we see Jesus connected his to his disciples. So this is different. This is different than being a, a covenant member in a church family. These are the, I'm talking about like your like social friends that you like live life with in different degrees. Um, he identifies some myths, and I want to take three of those that really stood out to me. He has four, but I, I just don't understand, so I'm going to skip that one. Uh, but he, he identifies some myths, and, and so I, this is sort of my version of some things that, that he pointed out. And it reminded me, you might remember a few years ago, or you might not, no judgment here. Uh, I did a series on the, like various patterns of the world, and then compared that with patterns of the kingdom, to show how the world that we live in tells us, gives us certain messages about certain things. And Paul says, Don't conform to those patterns. Be transformed by, by a renewed mind, letting God teach us how to think about things correctly. It reminds me of that, almost like these are patterns of the world regarding friendship that, that keep us from the deep kinds of connections that we see here uh, between Jesus and his disciples, and we see it other places in the Bible as well. So I want to I take those three myths... And just kind of talk about them and contrast them to what we see in the life of Jesus. All right? Awesome. Here we go. The first one is uh, the assumption of romance. The assumption of romance. Um, and I I really, like when I read this, I just, I when I first read this part of the chapter, I was on an airplane. I think I just nodded the whole time. So my... You know, co-passenger was probably a little worried about me. I was just, just nodding. Because oh, everything I was reading, I was like, yes, yes, absolutely. The assumption of romance, that there's this, this pattern that r- finds its origins with Sigmund Freud. Um, and Freud would say, whether we realize it or not, that sex is the underlying goal and driving force behind every relationship. That everything in the end is going to end up romantic. Everything. And so Freud was obsessed with that, and he thought that everyone else was obsessed with that. And his his writings and his teachings and his philosophy on things has has worked its way into the worldview that we were kind of born into. That there is this assumption that at the end of the day, uh, two people, whenever they get to like, whenever they begin to get close. That there is this underlying uh, idea of romance that is uh, in the back of their minds, like an app in the back of your, like, phone that isn't, that's just open and kind of running, that that's happening in all of our relationships. And what that has done is that is, uh, it has created this paranoia to where a lot of people won't share their lives very deeply with another person, um, for fear that something romantic may happen. Or fear that people are gonna think something is happening. I remember reading it and I was like, Yeah, I I get that. You have people you have you have two two guys who are friends and they are either keeping each other at arm's length emotionally, spiritually, like any of that kind of stuff, keeping each other at arm's length because uh they don't want people to think something is going on between them you have you have uh, a guy and a girl who are good friends and then their friends are either teasing them about like let's say they're not married or they're teasing them about it or assuming something or they're both afraid of the other one and so there's the whole like friend zone thing you know and all that stuff all uh, that that's happening in all these relationships that there's this Fear in the back of people's minds that either it's going to head down that road, or people are going to think it's heading down that road. And maybe, maybe you wouldn't articulate it that way, but if you're honest with yourself, there's a there's a reason why two men are only going to get to be so close. And maybe, maybe you would articulate it and say like, "No, it's just weird. You know, it's just weird, guys. It's just weird. Why is it weird? Like, let's start, Let's think about how stupid that is. You know." How stupid is it that 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 just because of your gender you can only you can only open up your life so much? But it's it's there. Maybe it's not level ten for you. Maybe it's it's like a lower level. But it's just kind of there, and it, and it it keeps it keeps a lot of our like same sex friendships from going as far like, in, like into one another's lives in a healthy way like we see here with, with Jesus. There's no historical evidence, there's no biblical evidence that at the base of every relationship there's some sort of romantic idea. And so we, we have to look at that and say and recognize it for what it is, even though it may not be something you've ever articulated or even thought, there is this undercurrent that's out there in our world. They joke about it in movies, they joke about it on on TV you watch you watch it especially between men and so could it be like men in the room? could it be that that is what that's a part of what is keeping you from like really like sharing your life with another guy? you're going to say no because it's so absurd, but is there a part of you? Is there a part of you that has grown up? kind of just being arm's length with everyone uh, because because of that. Like, vulnerability is not good. Closeness is not good. All those kinds of things are not good. And obviously, it's, it's a little different with, with women, um, but, but it, it, has, uh, it has some of the same sort of undertones. And then you have male-female like friendships and relationships where um, there's such a guardedness that can be there, and sometimes that guardedness needs to happen. Amen. Uh, but sometimes it's just so it's just so unnecessary. And so when you look at the Bible, Jesus paints it the opposite picture of Sigmund Freud. He shares his life openly and deeply with these twelve men. He's even closer with Peter, James, and John than he is the other nine, and he's even closer with John than he is the other eleven. That Jesus had a best friend. Is that, is that weird to you? It, uh, Jesus had a best friend. Jesus had a tight group of friends that he would have maybe like hung out with more than the other ones. Is that weird to you? Does that offend you? I think it's kind of awesome. Out of all the people that wanted to be close to Jesus, Jesus was like, I'm going to have friends. He didn't say, no, I'm going to keep everyone at arm's length because I need to fo- say focus on my stuff. That he was mature enough to say, no, I, I can live openly with this entire uh, you know, hillside of people and this group of a hundred that have come to hear me teach and this group of twelve and this group of three and this one in appropriate ways, and nothing weird happened. Nothing weird happened. Another, another uh, piece of biblical evidence is David and Jonathan. So people read the account of David and Jonathan, which we're going to go through next week. And people look at that and they say, oh, something funny was going on between them. And the reason why modern readers will read this, and you'll see what I'm talking about next week. Modern readers will read that and be like, I don't know. I think something romantic was going on there. But that has never happened in the history of biblical interpretation until our day and age. Until Freud came in and just kind of like introduced this idea. Up, up until recently, people would have read that and be like, wow, what a, what a deep friendship. Like, I want a David and Jonathan kind of friendship. And now there are entire like groups of people who are validating um, certain kinds of behavior using David and Jonathan as their example. So, the assumption of romance is just ridiculous. But it is a pattern of the world and is... Nothing what we see with Jesus at all that you can be you can be a close and deep friend to someone of the same sex and nothing romantic happened, and you can be a close and deep friend of someone of the opposite sex, and nothing romantic can happen. It is absolutely possible okay all right so that 's one the second one um, so we have the assumption of romance the second is the the elevation of marriage okay so the, uh, so marriage in our day is considered the highest form of relationship. And a close second would be like the, the family connections. Kids and siblings and parents and, you know, you know th- those kinds of things. Grandparents, that kind of stuff. That that is, in our modern day, that's the apex, is marriage. Um, the Bible would endorse marriage as being very worthy of that kind of merit, of, of being highly regarded it 's Christ in the church it's a, it 's a covenant It's it 's re- reflecting the commitment and the, the and the love and the just the lifelong like this connection between two people it, it reflects god 's connection to us and you, you guys know me i 'm a huge fan of marriage, so nothing i 'm about to say has anything to do with bringing marriage down but the el- the elevation of marriage has also kind of uh, pushed other kinds of relationships down in terms of like seeing them as significant and important and valuable uh, in, in, in a lot of ways um, Our culture seems you take all these other kind of committed relationships and it kind of seems like culture' kind of bumped those down a little bit um, and so i 'm not saying at all that marriage should come down i 'm saying that that things like friendship and uh, like like church covenant relationships even community group covenant relationships that those things should be pushed back up so that we're seeing all these committed relationships as this, as equally valuable and important and crucial to us and so if if our culture has pushed has pushed marriage super high um, then perhaps some of what like perhaps some of what God wants to do is is to help us see those as all being equal um, for a, a number of, of reasons, um, if you buy into this pattern of the world, where marriage is the only is the is the only high form of committed relationship, um, you end up with some strange things. You end up with uh, married people who only have one friend, and you end up with single people who have a whole host of issues. Like if we're buying into that. It's very lonely for the married people, right? And it's very lonely for the not married people, right? Now, Not that I'm, not that I'm saying that you know, loneliness is the worst thing in the whole world and all that kind of stuff, but we were created for relationships, right? Like we were to be tied to one another. But we've all seen this pattern unfold before. And you hear people talk about when, when a couple gets married and they kind of just vanish for a while, you know? They don't hang out as much and that kind of stuff, you know, and the kids come along. And it's just it's one of those things where you, you hear people talk about uh, generations before us and, and how, um, like, there's this pattern that emerges where um, a couple gets married and they kind of step away from their friends. And they're together, and that's beautiful and good, right? And they start maybe having some kids, and then everything becomes about the kids. And it's this constant, like, inward turn into their, into their family, And the dad doesn't have a lot of like 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 deep connections with other men, and the 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 mom doesn't have a lot of deep connections with other women, and you know, or it's just golfing buddies and that kind of stuff, hunting buddies or whatever, or it's just uh, you know like other moms at the park watching the kids, you know, there's just those those kind of things where they're friendships, but they're more acquaintances than they are deep, like Jesus and the twelve friends. And so as that happens. It's an inward turn, Life, everything becomes about the kids. Last kid gets out of the house, mom and dad look at each other and they're like, I don't know who you are, you don't know who I am, we don't have anyone around us. And some of the highest divorce statistics are with empty nesters because they, they've they made everything about the kids and now the kids are gone and they're like, what do we do next? And, and so when we buy into that, it... it, it, it can drive us into this cycle that is incredibly inward-focused and very unhealthy. But worse than that, it's not what God like, intends for us. It's not what Jesus models for us. That here we have Jesus sharing in this his life with these people that he is not married to. And he opens up his life and, and shares that and you know we can we can excuse that away, you know and be like, oh well, he was Jesus and all that, or is he showing us that marriage is not the only committed relationship that you can have? Is he showing us through his covenant commitments to these men that hey these these are all legitimate relationships, and you all need all of these relationships is Is it possible that he models something for us that shows us that we need to be thinking of marriage and committed friendship, and committed church covenant family uh, stuff, and all those things, and all the same, even and parenting, can we see all those on the same playing field? Or can we buy into this myth that only one of those is legitimate and necessary and good? So please don't hear me saying, let's bring marriage down. You, like, if you've been around it long enough, you know I'm I'm huge on it. But perhaps there's more fullness of connection that God has for us in terms of this as well. And so maybe the, maybe the assumption of romance is holding you back. Maybe, the, maybe this, this kind of, um, like the exaltation of marriage above everything else, maybe that is keeping us from those deep connections that we see Jesus in the Twelve. But make no mistake, Jesus affirms marriage and he affirms friendship as equally high forms of commitment to each other, and this this book that I read, like this, um, well, let me go to the next one. I got, it. yeah, all right, last one, number three. So we have the the assumption of romance, the elevation of marriage. The third one is the misunderstanding of commitment. That friendship is seen as a low level commitment. Um, it's easy to buy into, and it's easy to opt out of, uh, which we love, right? Like, we love to keep all our options open. We love to not feel pinned down to anything. Um, when I was in college, uh, I uh, so I had a really good chemistry teacher in high school, Mr. Gordon. Anyone? And so, uh, I had Mr. Gordon, and so when I was scheduling at LSU, I, uh, I needed to take a chemistry class, and all the... The ones for non-science majors were full, but there was an opening in the one for science majors, and I was like, I can't, that's no problem at all. Because he would always tell us, like, if you take my class, you'll have no problem at LSU in the chemistry classes. And so I, I took it up, I took him up on it. So the first test um, went in. I made a 96. I was like, oh, man, this is going to be cake. No problem. So I kind of stopped going to class. And the next test, uh, I made an 8. <laughs> Yeah, it was awesome. Um, and I made an eight, and I immediately, what all you college students, what did I do immediately? Dropped it. I'm out. Went, took my W, and that was it. Because at LSU, they have, that, at least back in my day, they had it built in to where you had a certain number of times you could just drop a class, no questions asked. And I love that. It was like this little safety net in every class. If it's too much, you can always get out of it before a certain date or whatever. We love that kind of stuff. We love to, to have things that are low commitment. Uh, some of you, like, don't, you don't want to get a new phone because it's like a two year commitment. You're like, oh, I don't know. It's two whole years, you know. Or, or there's all these things about us where we, we want to be able to get out of everything all the time so easily to the point where we'll just break a commitment. And then we get mad at people for trying to hold us to it. You know, it's just a weird time that we live in. Well, friendship. Uh, one of the myths that he identifies that I also think we buy into is that there is a low—it's a low commitment kind of thing. It doesn't cost you very much to be friends with people, and if they make you mad, just go get another friend. Right? That's all you got to do. We see it all the time. People write each other off, or they get you know get mad at someone, or block them on Facebook or whatever. And there's all this like stuff where friendship is just like you can just kind of take it or leave it. Like, friends are just like lanyard. Like it just, they're just kind of extra in your life and whatever. Maybe you have a few close ones, but for the most part, it's like you can, you can always get out of those friendships, but it's not like a marriage, right? And it's not like a church covenant commitment. It's not like those things that, that we intentionally design to make it difficult to break the tie because friends are, like, you don't even make a commitment to them. You're just friends with them. Like, it's no, you don't have to pinky swear you don't have to do like anything like that. You just are friends or you're not friends. It's fine. Much of that is rooted in this like pragmatic culture where if if I don't know, it's not like it's not like friends friends are not the kind of thing where like it's like what can you do for me kind of thing. It's not a business transaction. You know, like it's just like the only point of friendship is that you just enjoy each other's company. That's it for some reason, that's translated into, like, everything should be easy and whatever all the time. It's not very self-serving, which makes it kind of expendable. See, Jesus models the exact opposite of that. Like, he is eternally committed to his friends. And is willing to sacrifice his own life for their good. Look again, look look back at John 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That he's made these, these commitments to them. Like it's this forever kind of commitment. He says, no, uh, greater love is no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. It says, you are my friends. That he's making like a, I'll die for you kind of commitment to them. He's not married to them. This is not his church covenant family. These are his friends. That friendship can have a commitment to it. And the the author of the book, like he he suggests, like having some friends, like have a like nice meal together, and like commit to each other. Like, don't assume. Like, articulate that. There's a story that I, that I've heard, and it's through someone I know, but I can't remember which friend it is. Um, so, just take trust me on this. But that their church elders had a time where they made a commitment to each other. That if anything ever happened to them, that their wives and kids and families and stuff will be completely taken care of. That that was like a a part of their covenant together. Is you don't need to worry about what what if something happens to me, like we've we've got we've got your family taken care of. You don't need to ever ever question that or worry about that for, even for a second. I was like that that's what we're seeing. That's Jesus and the twelve. That's. What we should be together, and so this author he suggests like getting your friends together and don't don't assume it, say it. Now, I don't know if anyone here here's going to do that. Some of y'all are like you get you just want me to stop talking because you don't like the idea of sitting around with your friends saying hey I, I want you guys to know I promise to do this for y'all. You know? um, but perhaps the low threshold of commitment in our culture is a part of what keeps us from from that kind of commitment because friends some of you have friends that are they're closer to you than your family you know and so why would why would they be treated differently than your family just because they're friends you know so there is this this underlying current that this like assumption of romance is kind of twisted into some some thinking there's this thought that friendship is, is kind of on the friends, that, that only marriage, that's the only, only deeply committed relationship in your life. And then there's this idea that friendship is not really designed to be a true deep commitment. It's just kind of, it's very loose and just kind of like come and go. And we don't see that with Jesus anywhere. And so if Jesus is modeling something for us, and he says in that verse, love one another as I have loved you, then we are to be loving one another in our friendships the way that we see it here. That there is no assumption of romance. Now, now, there's wisdom, okay? Wisdom. But there's not an assumption of romance. That we embrace marriage and we embrace friendship and we embrace our covenant commitments as a church family. Is all Look at all these people. Look at all these promises that you're on the receiving end of and the giving end of. Isn't that a beautiful, you know? And that we see our friendships as something that that uh, you can you can have low commitment to your Facebook friends and your acquaintances, but are there some people that you're willing to say, "I'm devoted to you"? The way that Jesus models for us, could it be that He wants us to see the fullness of the relationships that He's given us? I think I think He wants us to to think about it. I, I, I believe that He wants us to. Um, to maybe look at some of these patterns. I, I, think, I think he brought this my way to bring your way for us to begin to maybe think about these things and pray through these things and see if some of these kinds of myths are keeping us from, uh, from really going more deeply together and being, being arm's length. And I don't know what it has to do with you, but to me the starting point in, in understanding friendship is, is to look at Jesus and the disciples and to realize that we are on the receiving end of that as well. That when Jesus made his covenant with them, that this same group, he's there with them. They do they, they take the Lord's Supper, and he there. There's some symbolism that sometimes is lost on us, but whenever whenever a covenant was made, um, or a like a marriage covenant was made, you always had a, the sacrifice of an animal, and you would have people drinking from a common cup. And so here he is with his disciples his friends, that he's about to lay down his life for. And he makes this commitment to his friends. And they didn't sacrifice an animal necessarily, but when he breaks the bread, perhaps, you know, he's saying, like, this is what's going to happen to me. So he was the sacrifice. And they drink from a common cup that he's devoted to them. He's devoted to you and to us. And so your model for your friendships is Jesus' friendship with you. And then you take that and you go duplicate that with your friends and, when, and in your marriage and in your covenant community. So really the table is a, it's a logical starting point for us to say, God, I, whatever you want to speak to me, I want to hear it. But have you ever thought about you being on the receiving end of, of that friendship commitment? That Jesus stands at the table and offers to you his body and blood as his friend. Not as a sinner you know, who should be ashamed of themselves. Not as some pitiful beggar. He's like, no, you're my friend. You're my friend who is broken and I came to die for your healing. This is where your healing is found. This is where it happens. And so when we take communion in a minute maybe that's a part of what we can be thinking about is this deep love that Jesus has for you and for us. And the fact that maybe in our world there's some stuff that's keeping us from living in deep connections with each other that He can correct. He can work that out. So I don't know what it has to do with you, but there it is. So I'm going to pray. The band's going to come. We're going to sing a little bit. Joel and Jenny Gilbert are going to serve communion to us tonight. And uh, this is the kind, of, you know, where you tear it off. Now, last week, some people were like, man, that tastes kind of weird. That's because there was no gluten in it. Um, and, and that, you know, I, and people kept you know people would make comments, and you would tell them, you're like, oh, why was there no gluten in it? It's like, well, some people, like, literally can't have any gluten in their whole body. And they're like, oh. And they're like, so that means that some people have been unable to take communion, like, because of that. And so as a demonstration of our friendship to them, we're just going to, like, have gluten-free bread. People are like, oh, all right, that's cool. That's the kind of stuff that we want to do for one another. So, uh, one more element <laughs> to think about tonight. And so you'll step forward and you'll tear that bread off and you'll dip it in there. And, and and to think about the sacrifice and the common cup its just amazing. So let's stand together. Let me pray for us. Why don't you just take a second and think about... Um, Think about the next few minutes. You can respond in singing. You can come and kneel and pray. Uh, You can take communion. You don't have to do any of those things. But take just a minute and just kind of think. Think about you being on the receiving end of Jesus' commitment to his friends. That when he says, you are my friends, he was talking to the twelve. But he's also talking to us and to you specifically. And that your friend Jesus stands before you offering himself. Lord God, I'm grateful uh, for this room. And I know that you are grateful for this room. Um, that you would look at us and you would, you would call us your friends as well. Because you don't call us servants. Because servants don't know what their master is doing. But you call us friends because you have uh, you've told us everything that the Father wanted you to say that you've revealed goodness to us and mercy to us and the truth that you're willing to lay down your life for us as your friends so there are all kinds of myths that we can buy into that maybe would keep us from living in that kind of depth together But you and you alone are our model for what friendships and relationships should look like so this really isn't about our friends right now this is about you would you help us as we approach you in prayer and in worship and in communion would you help to maybe reorder some things give us some things to think about or open us up to would you challenge us as you are our model for what uh, for what real friendship is supposed to look like we thank you that you call us friend that you're willing to lay down your life a commitment to us. We'll celebrate that together tonight.